Hey guys, it's Emmett and John, and we are here with another installment of your weekly podcast about why nothing feels possible. Before we get going, I was encouraged to promote the podcast more by several listeners, frankly. So I'm going to do that and also promote my new Substack, which is Nuclear Barbarians. You can go to nuclearbarbarians.substack.com to get a weekly newsletter on what the hell's going on with energy in the world and to get a weekly podcast on what's happening with nuclear and energy in the world. Totally free. I have a lot of fun doing it. You should check it out. There's some cool stuff there. And we are getting close to wrapping up Christopher Lash's The True and Only Heaven on the Patreon. We can't mm-hmm. believe we're almost done. We record the second to last episode uh, a few days from recording this one. So if you want to get that and the entire back catalog of that and everything else we've done there, it's only seven bucks a month. And you'll also get our After Virtue reading series, which I know people found really helpful. And you will also get our next reading series, which will be on Kosolek's Futures Past, where we'll be taking a look at his interpretation. <laughs> Twice sorry, a month, we'll be to. rewatching <laughs> X Men until our brains break. No, we'll be we'll be reading that where he takes a look at conceptions of history, historical progress, and how that has changed as we've moved through modernity. So I think that's going to be really illuminating, really exciting, and also challenging. I know that John and I are pretty pumped to get kicking on it. And after that, we'll be doing um, Michael Gillespie's The Theological Origins of Modernity. So we've got some sick stuff lined up for you guys this year. We're really excited to get cracking it's on it over there. It's going to be a dope summer. Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> Football, baby! Wow! Um, <laughs> There's this kid I went to high school with named Griffin. And if you left a drink too close to the edge of the lunch table, he'd walk up, slap it off and go football, baby. Whoa! Um, <laughs> so, anyway, today we are doing our first installment of shock of the new. We're going to keep this on the public and free feed. This documentary done by Robert Hughes, which is, I think, a 10-part series that takes a look. We won't be doing it all in one order, so you guys aren't about to get 10 episodes in a row of art history. Do not worry. Um, (laughs) uh, I mean, it might be cool to do that, but uh, I want to diversify it a little bit. But we'll be doing all of it here. Shock of the New takes a look at modern art, its beginnings, and where we are now. And we wanted to do this because we've been having this conversation about aesthetics, about culture that fits into why nothing feels possible anymore. But we haven't actually taken a look at art history as such. We've mostly been staying within the political, industrial, and like textual realm of thinking about this. And we've had some talks about how we wish we had more art education and we wish we would talk about visual art a little bit more. So we have decided to endeavor with this. Angela Nagel and her newsletter tipped me off to this series. We watched the first episode. We both really liked it. It is called Mechanical Paradise, and it is about the birth of modernity at the end of the 19th century and the birth of modern art from the end of the 19th century to right before the First World War. Yeah, period, I have to say, I know nothing about almost in terms of art history like one of my big blind spots honestly i like know the paintings but i don't know the context if you know what i mean like i've seen some of the paintings i have a vague idea of the movements but not until maybe very recently did i even start to think about reading about some of the stuff 
No. And what I like about what um, Robert Hughes does is he talks about how art galleries or art museums themselves have a way of keeping us from appreciating how old modern art is at this point. He's doing this documentary in the 80s. So we're 40 years beyond that now. And I think that that's something that will just sort of be in the background as we talk about this. So we start with the important image of the Eiffel Tower in documentary, which is modeled off of the Colossus, the Colossi of the past, as Hughes tells us in his frumpy, incredibly posh, stentorial Australian accent, and is this sort of laid bare feet of mechanical engineering that actually changes people's relationship with Paris in a way that is distinctly modern. And by that, I mean, it, first of all, ends up becoming a radio tower. So that's an important element of it. But also, and this is going to be a running theme throughout what he wants to talk about, I have a feeling, or at least is in this episode, when we talk about the human gaze, the human eye, and how it has been fixed in the classical mode of the detached observer looking at a coherent world rendered on a canvas. And the Eiffel Tower has an elevator that brings you up so that you can see all of Paris, because it used to be the tallest building there. I think, I'm sure other things have like superseded it. They're way bigger. But I was thinking about that just as an experience for the first time and how crazy that must have felt because only a few people who'd ridden in balloons and like makeshift aircraft had ever seen that God's eye view. But what's important to think about for me when I think about this, because we're going to talk about cubism here in a second and how different perspectives factor into it when you're looking at Picasso, is thinking about the elevator ride itself and slowly being given this shifting perspective of an entire city you have only known at most a few floors up generally at eye level and now you have to incorporate all of that information into your literal worldview your understanding of your end placement your phenomenal experience of the city and that is i think why he opens with the eiffel tower yeah it was interesting because the uh perspective that i had been acquainted with of the eiffel tower before was the opposite which was uh, its effect on you as a parisian from below which was you don't really hear about it now but it was famously like very divisive like a lot of people were like paris is done like this thing looks like shit the city's completely over as a place to like go be look at something mm -hmm. it'll never be the same now which I think they're right. Like no matter what side of that you fall on, like Paris is never going to be the same. And yes, it's, it's got all these medieval aspects because it's such an old city, like medieval and even, you know, under all of the accumulation pre-medieval because it's that old, but this is kind of like a moment when things are changing in a more than superficial way, I think. And as a city, because you could say that like, a lot of the 18th century and 19th century stuff going on in Paris while things are being added to the city or being built up, there's still in some way this like essential 
kind of like oldness to it which is now sort of being obliterated if not literally then like in some ideal way mm-hmm. by the arrival of this this strange tower which is as you point out <clears throat> changing not only the look of the city but the way in which more people can can view the world prior to the rise of air travel mm-hmm. <clears throat> exactly and i think it's definitely divisive. I mean, it is sort of the watershed moment of modernity for Paris. And I also, so he does this other thing where he goes through like a, a list of inventions that happen around mm. then. And I mean, every time I go through that, like I just re- read Richard Rhodes's Energy of Human History, highly recommend that book, by the way. The ending of it's very funny. Like he spends all of this time writing on these early inventors and gets deep into like Maxwell's life and stuff like that. And then at the end, he's like, yeah, renewables exist. And I kind of have to pretend like I respect them. But anyway, nuclear is <laughs> great. Bye. <laughs> Book's over. <laughs> but when reading that book, you get a sense of just how crazy the velocity shift in when you get to the modern moment. Because a lot of what we've been trying to figure out recently on the show is what is just endemic to humankind what are things we just do like industry and how different is modernity in both quantity and quality from earlier expressions of these qualities of what we do and this gives us some pretty interesting insights into that because it is defined, the modern era, as Hughes describes it, is defined by the incredible consumption of objects and images that create this kaleidoscopic collage-like experience of everyday life. And that that is a noticeable departure from the alleged coherence or the, I would say, continuing assumptions of the older world. One of the interesting things to me about the early part of this, which he doesn't explicitly get into, but I think is at least somewhat, maybe I missed it if if it was, kind of like cubism being this multi-perspectival form of of like rendering an image and paint where you've got, if I'm getting that right, like you've got these multiple perspectives being incorporated into Mm -hmm. a single perspective, which accounts for how like weird it looks initially to you because it's trying to take something either in totality or at least in like a multitude of, of frames of reference and then putting that all into one thing. That was kind of fascinating because earlier, as you mentioned, this film was invented and to me that it feels significant in terms of, mm-hmm. well, at least because I know today there's always like this painting dead, <laughs> you know, like people For talk sure. about yeah. that all the time. And like, what is the point of painting? What can you do with painting? And you've got, you know, because there's an idea that painting needs to be constantly innovative to be worth like existing. Like if it's not new and doing something, then it doesn't even need to be art anymore. We should just be doing other kinds of art that are new, Mm -hmm. which is in a way very, that's like a modern feeling to me, like a modern ethos of art of, of, of that. And so there's this idea that like house painting responding to the world around it, which is now like not the same as it was during like the age of the Dutch masters or whatever, when we mm-hmm. could just look at those and be like, well, isn't that great? But now it's like, if you paint that, it's like, cool, you're good at painting, but whatever in terms of what it means to me mm-hmm. as a, as a, as a modern art person or whatever. 
And I, I immediately felt that kind of sense of like cubism just felt like something that had to come to being in the world of film because film just as a possibility just sort of shatters what it means to have. Well, he contrasts the, who is it? It's either, it's one of the Renaissance painters buying a bunch of doves and then releasing them so he can watch how they fly. And then he takes like this early French photographer who just like did sequential stills of a bird mm -hmm. flapping its wings and like that type of literalness and like, I want to say like a deinterpretive capability, right? It's just like a stricter form of representation. This is the crisis that photography and film bring to painting it was just, I could like almost see it for the first time while watching this documentary and just like, the like visual violence of modern art in mm -hmm. comparison to the traditional mode. I think he does a great job of harmonizing or a great job of, of showing us that because we have a few different views. So we're given Picasso and the guy he shared a studio with, whose name I've already forgotten, but who was big on Cezanne. Cezanne's sort of like the proto cubist to Hughes, especially Cezanne's later work. So we see a lot of, I would call it, I think Boris Groys, if he doesn't call it that, he references a painter that calls it that, the sort of turn to weak universal forms and hesitations on the representation of what's going on. So basic geometries, but also incorporating the way he sees it into the painting. Hughes says, it's not just, this is what I see, it is now, how do I see it or what am I seeing becomes the question rather than statement of painting. And Picasso and his studio mate, of course, push this farther and farther with cubism. And we see violent multi-perspectival interpretation collapsed into single images, which feels like a stilled version of what happens with moving film, but also with the general speed that has been brought into everyday life. And there are going to be a few different iterations on that. You're going to have guys like uh, Italian futurists that show up and they are like just burned out. It's like just burned down the rest of the world. Who cares? Right. What's his name? Yeah. Marinetti has this great thing where he says like, let the museums flood and we'll see these paintings like Bob and stuff and that. Mm -hmm. And I was like, there is something like just cubist about that, like as a visual ex like thing to imagine in your head. You know, there's also he there's apparently wanted to level Venice to the ground and turn it <laughs> into an airplane factory. That's amazing. Dude. <laughs> yeah. So there's just like this total um, love affair with the mechanization of everyday life. Um, you also have some communist responses to that, which aren't something that Hughes looks at. But I, some of the Russian cosmists or the avant-garde of Russians, I, one of the guys was just like, look, if we just burnt everything in the museum down to dust and put the dust into swallowable capsules and disperse them to people, that would be a better consumption of art than whatever exists right now. And we could finally start fresh. And I was like, that is fucking wild, bro. <laughs> like yeah, there's so like much to unpack in that. But I think we see here this sort of destructive and consumptive element of the modern experience being born. The, you bring up Russian art is, is funny because it's like the only art in this time period I actually know anything about mm -hmm. and because it's kind of like for stupid nerds. Like Russian <laughs> symbolism was something I got into because it was just that, you know, they were just like huffing Wagner and like mm -hmm. Nietzsche and 
like John Milton. It was like an interesting sort of eclectic mixture of like influences on them, but they were painting these like weird, like dark sort of medievalish looking stuff, but like every like symbolism. So there's supposed to be like an esoteric aspect to it. And then those guys sort of like go off in multiple directions and some of them form the like early kind of like super um, like anti-figurative school of like, we're just doing pure abstraction. And there's a really interesting like philosophical component to that, which, you know, is looking at the way in which figurative representations have certain biases towards things like beauty or like strikingness Mm -hmm. or like being extraordinary over like plain or mediocre or mundane things or like, you know, old age or like the masculine over the feminine, like different things or whatever. There are these oppositions which are playing out and they started to get interested in the way in which like that might be interesting to overcome or like to look beyond, or is there something more like primordial or whatever Mm -hmm. there's a famous painting the black square which the painter wasn't a muslim but it's been pointed out that there's like an interesting symbolism to that idea Mm -hmm. there and like what that was trying to go for and that being kind of the only thing i knew about this period of art it i had a natural sort of aversion to a lot of that stuff until i started to see the kind of like philosophical complexity of what they were trying to wrestle with and this all comes right up until basically the Russian revolution like destroys a lot of these possibilities in Russia. And really you get like socialist realism Mm -hmm. as the hegemonic form of artistic conception for the rest of the 20th century. And this stuff goes elsewhere, but Mm -hmm. yeah, you get that like little sprint of not quite a decade after the revolution where all sorts of different possibilities are being explored. And then Mm -hmm. Stalinism kicks in and that, (laughs) and that changes everything at the same time. And this is where we leave off in the Hughes is World War One changes everything for the rest of Europe. I mean, these happen right around the same time, right? So the Irish Revolution is 1916, Russian Revolution is 1917, and you get the German uprisings that happen around that time as well. I think that's just one year later in 18, and then you have World War One going on, and it's just this total leveling effect. But interestingly, there's this great excerpt from Gertrude Stein that Hughes pulls out where she's walking down the street with Picasso and they see this cannon that's painted in camouflage and this is like old camouflage where it's just like weird shapes being like hand painted onto a piece of metal and Picasso's like just astonished and wrapped by watching this cannon roll down the street and he says it is we who created this and she goes and he was right you know, I think that the complexity of that moment is, I think, what Baju means when he describes the early 20th century, the modern impulse as the passion for the real. Is that as a response to industrialization, is a response to industrial war, a response to intensifying divisions of labor, but also this need to get to these underlying structures or assumptions around it and to rupture this lowercase real that is hovering just above it. Damn. (laughs) That's, I had never heard that. 
Yeah. And, that's fascinating. And, and that that's what I see in that moment of Picasso's. Now, Hughes has some interesting things to say about Picasso, especially the incorporation of African masks into some of how Picasso wants to look at the world. So Hughes is known for being a conservative, which I thought was so fucking funny when he's like, yeah, like Picasso and his flatmate or whatever did not really care about the cultural context of these things, did not care about the tribes, basically had the colonial assumptions that they were just like, not things that might be incorporated into everyday life or rituals that supply meaning to the people that use them, but are actually just like the dark violence of the colonial <laughs> holdings expressed through primitive craftsmanship. And they were like interested in that and incorporating that into their thing. And he says, it's not so much whites paying deference to blacks, as he puts it very bluntly, but plundering their work, much like the empire. He doesn't belabor that point, but I think it's worth uh, bringing up because you can see that even in Picasso's later work in sculpture, one of which is in downtown Chicago, and it looks like an African mask. This stays with his work for a very long time. There's a interesting, well, so Filippo Marinetti was actually raised in Egypt, which was, I thought, kind of interesting to think That's about. That's fascinating, yeah. So he apparently was there and his father was working the ruler at the time who was like a modern reformer who was doing like the Suez Canal and that kind of stuff mm -hmm. so there is a sort of like that was the context of his youth but he it's like in the you know, there were a lot of Italians and other Europeans there at the time but it's just like a very colonial context in general for a lot of the figures that were discussed today in the documentary and I think his was maybe the most direct because mm -hmm. of his his actual presence there but <laughs> later he has like a sound poem that's just like barrel whiz bang kapoom like just this random <laughs> crap all over the page and it's about like the bombing of adrianople and and like turkey by like these warplanes or whatever and just like how good that was because it was like the full effacement of the old by the new that's sort of like an exuberance or whatever but it, it got me thinking about like the way in which <sighs> Like, there's just so much going on, like, because <clears throat> you have the stuff with this sort of like, oh, like the, the, all the world is raw material. Like, mm -hmm. let me go to the, the islands and paint the native women kind of stuff or whatever, which I think that's kind of reductive and there's more going on to those paintings than For just sure. that, but that's yeah. still going on. Like, that's a thing is sort of like, yeah. you can't ignore it at the same time. You're like, there are these. I think in some sense, there's a feeling of like exhausted possibilities in Europe and like a dead end in a lot of ways amongst a lot of intellectuals and artists at the time who are all more or less in contact with one another. And part of that is like for the first time ever, you have like widely available the sort of spoils of like world civilization Mm -hmm. up until now available to you as a European, like you can buy translations of things in a bookstore from like China or India or whatever mm -hmm. you can go get like prints or photographs of like the weird stuff from the Americas or just things like that are now kind of like coming into your world because of the way technology has changed. And like, we have photographs and stuff, you know, you have photographs of the samurai right before the samurai stopped being a thing, that cool kind of thing. And you now have like an interesting, like colonial melange, like a soup and then the way that people 
are interacting with that is like really just so many strains of thought because on the other end of this like really machinic stuff you also have the like explosive birth especially in paris and in france of like the new wave of western esotericism which is all sort of about I mean, you have so many different kinds of it, but there's like the Theosophical Society with Madame mm-hmm. Blavatsky, that whole thing, which Kandinsky was a part of. And Kandinsky is such a big figure in like this period of art. So you have, I think, as much as you have celebrations of the like frenetic modern stuff, you also have these really interesting like romantic reactions to it that are also like to find their raw material are participating in kind of like scooping up this like colonial harvest if you will of mm-hmm. culture that is all brought back and is now opening up more possibilities and it's no longer how it might have been because you had the like the the very first stirrings of this i would say would be in like og romanticism times yeah where you have like on one hand diderot and encyclopedias and like the hope for like rational society and all these sorts of things and then on the other hand you have like someone like Goethe occupying an interesting middle ground and then figures um, more directly in the romantic camp who are looking towards some kind of like older German thing or like older thing, like Greek for a lot of them, like Greek society Mm -hmm. where, you know, there were the solutions to these sorts of problems that were being felt in Europe, which was like the Christian heritage kind of sucks. Uh, This is like, becoming to be a big feeling like the spirit and the body are separated the body is hated and the spirit is valorized and so Mm -hmm. like we're cut off from the world but the greeks weren't when you look at greek stuff they were like totally like embedded (laughs) they were embedded there is this whole cyclical like understanding of life and they weren't like radically riven from their context and like there is something attractive about that to a lot of people and especially the romantics who thought that that would be achievable again at like a higher plane And so you have all this kind of stuff going on. And this is originally when you get the first translations of stuff like the Vedas or you get Goethe going, reading all of these like German translations of like Hafiz and all these Sufi poets and then writing his own Diwan, his own like Sufi poetry in German. And this is like the, like, like we talked about with, oh gosh, what's his name? The American scholar, you know, that guy. You know what I'm talking about? Here oh, with the oh, American scholar. Was that Emerson? Yeah, Emerson. Emerson's yeah. like highly eclectic kind yes, of stuff. Absolutely. Like that's starting to happen at that time. And then, so I feel like there's a lot of continuity with the 19th century, earlier 19th century, late 18th century, and how like this is the beginning of what I would call like the globalization of culture and the access to these things that's available to you in a much broader way than ever before. And also the initial stirrings of, you know, industrialization and stuff. And Mm -hmm. I think then you get the birth of like concerns, which are still alive in the early 20th century at the period we are now in. And we're seeing like the very interesting continuation of them with like the constant reupheaval of like romantic neo-pagan or like orientalist sort of stir, like people looking for like the rebirth of meaning and like connectedness somewhere else because Mm -hmm. it clearly has been destroyed in Europe. And then people sort of celebrating the frenetic forward march. And it's this kind of like engine, which, you know, I think as Lash pointed out, interestingly, 
as we talked about in that series. Like these are, yeah. these are like the two sort of things that seem to make this go mm. are nostalgia and like progress. And right. I think so like this is interestingly the result of a lot of stuff that came before. No, I think that's correct. And <clears throat> when, when we're looking at what Hughes wants to show us about modern art, the incorporation of collage of everyday life of everyday objects you know we get uh what's his name with the fucking toilet seat duchamp yeah uh, you know <laughs> and his sort of like radical indifference to whatever happens he's a very fascinating figure we start to how do i want to put this it becomes difficult if we think of meaning making as something like uh, troubleshooting role ambiguity, <laughs> you know, this does this for me, this does this in the community, right? You're basically making distinctions and separations. You have roles assigned to things. They operate in a certain way. The modern moment is the like moment of potential absolute conflation of all of these things and incorporation of them into one experience. In other words, it is highly mediatized as an experience and it is collapsing geographies and contexts everywhere it reaches so no wonder there are people who sees this as a huge opportunity because frankly it creates lots of opportunities it creates tons of novelty and then you have people who have kind of like emotion sickness about it and want to go back and then you have some of the people that lash is looking at who are trying to hold some sort of middle ground usually tragically into no end. you know they're at least sort of in their own lifetimes right yeah they're sort of like also rands of like these two between these two poles even if they do end up being like totemic figures that that's going on and in that way i'm very interested to see what happens in the next episode because as soon as i started seeing the footage of world war one I, I thought god you know what world war one is really like wish fulfillment of the people who just want to level everything and the people who are scared that everything's going to be leveled and already has been. And everyone hates the result, <laughs> results, you know, more or less. And no wonder everybody's just beset, as we talked about in Lash and John and I have talked about before, with incredible skepticism and cynicism. Because as Hughes points out, there was something heroic about having doubt, as he says, locked into the meaning of a canvas. What am I seeing as the question? But when you're repaid in out and out senseless destruction over years and years that eradicates through militarized mechanization, old forms of being, old forms of combat, old forms of geography, et cetera, et cetera, that question no longer supplies or is incapable of supplying with the same thrust that type of heroism instead it leaves the field open for a no man's land of entrenched doubt yeah i think that you could only combine doubt and heroism right before the war because <laughs> yeah. that was the time in which that would have really made a kind of sense like you were the you were like some kind of archetypal modern figure who was mm -hmm. like 
meeting the world with a cold gaze in a sense, like willing to face up, you know, not going to be satisfied by any silly notions because you've read Freud and now you're ready to be like real or whatever. And then the war happens and then doubt remains pervasive, but I don't think you can call it heroic anymore. It's more of like a default, Mm -hmm. like response to something that sort of like levels the heroism and then seems the pretense i think to a lot of people or like to what end you know like well also because heroism is still pulls from this older tradition of the hero itself and it's clear i think to people who experience the trenches and their fallout that heroism is fucking stupid to a lot of them it's just a cruel joke that society has played on you because honor culture really gets destroyed in a lot of ways like not completely, mm-hmm. but like the handshake duel shit is fucking gone. <laughs> Once you get to mustard gas, man, it is just like a totally different experience of violence than yeah. what people had experienced before. Because it's also in some ways, if you think about the trenches and the experience of like running up over and into, you sort of see like the horror of modernity in a new way, not just in terms of its violence, but in terms of, how do I want to say this, going from total abstraction, which is just firing bullets across a space at each other, to incredibly like, like horrifying intimacy of bayoneting someone in the stomach while you're trapped in this tiny little t- like trench together. Yeah, and one of the, you know, I'm sure we're going to be getting into it, but one of the interesting things is that somehow the result of World War One is World War Two, which is like kind of fascinating from the perspective of like I'm trying to mentally hang out at World War One and then like cast my mind forward to this coming war. Yeah, the where, sequel brought to you by Steven Spielberg that we live in. in right, and it's. <laughs> It's interesting because in some ways, I guess it was sort of like the whole thing with Vietnam where you're like, I forget, there is a great Hunter S. Thompson like paragraph or something about the anti-war movement and how like they were laser focused on stopping this war and like mm-hmm. all, and like it just meant nothing. <laughs> like yeah. it didn't change anything. Mm-hmm. Like nothing happened. And like, what the, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Like, that all of that energy and those masses of people were like to absolutely no effect. It's similar feeling to this, just thinking about like how Dresden is on its way, like just bomb the shit out of, you know, these random German people, like, because, because it's like they're Germans, you know, and Winston Churchill's in charge. And that's kind of what he's into is just like (laughs) killing stuff, like just complete insanity on like, and then the fire bombings and then Japan, not to mention, I, dude, obviously, the, the, like the just debate, all the stuff that's about to happen. Yeah, it's it's crazy to think about, right? Yeah, I love the debates over, and I use love here, like sarcastically, obviously, between um, the guys who were committed to the firebombing campaign and then the guys who were like, we have this atomic bomb and we ought to drop it. And the guys doing the firebombing were just like, I don't know, man, like this is pretty extremely brutal and I think we're going to win in a few months. And the guys being like, fuck you, I outrank you, we're dropping the bomb today. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's like hard to understand in a way, 
because you're like, wow, wouldn't that have been like enough or something? Like not, <laughs> and maybe that's like, I don't know. It's probably extremely naive of me or something to say that and think that, but it's my initial reaction, which is the, the like, how could this have gone on and gotten worse? Like really quickly. Dude. You yeah. Oh, I mean? and, and, and we haven't even talked about like the, the concentration camps and like all of that's like, it is to bring it back to what we're looking at when we're looking at Hughes's presentation of the openings of modernity is an experience of a highly contingent and volatile mode of being that comes with incredible routinization mm-hmm. through industrialism. And those experiences are done in probably their most high fidelity way in war between the first two world wars. And so, of course, the human eye, in terms of how it finds expression, finds itself in modern painting, in modern sculpture, with deconstructive tendencies, with trying to lay things bare. It is an incredibly mysterious world that provides evidence for its being everywhere it is impossible to escape now there are so many things so many images lying around and then you have photography and film which are just in terms of pure mechanism highly literal and then on top of that you have gramophone recordings pioneered by thomas edison so we have an expansion of historical memory and a crisis of assimilating of new knowledge that we probably haven't seen since the transition from the from the from the Aristotelian Aquinan scholastic world to the world of Europe discovering the Americas and other places and the crisis of knowledge and routinizing information and trying to figure out where to put it and uh, where to assign meeting. This is the sort of high acceleration of things we're looking at when Mike and I were taking a look at Agrippa's assault on the memory techniques of the scholastic era. One of the interesting things that occurred to me at the end is we had all this footage of Duchamp like being able to tell us about stuff you know, like the glass painting and incredible interview. I want to figure out if I can watch the whole thing. Honestly, Yeah. Just like his feelings and stuff. And I was like, man, like this, this thing in the documentary is actually also very interesting because like, this is a huge difference between him and like Picasso. So Picasso cannot become a film character for me. And mm-hmm. that in some ways like changes everything. Like, it's mm-hmm. a huge rift between what came before and what came after because you can have these interviews. And now this guy is like in many ways, a personality above and beyond his art, because I can watch him pontificate and, you know, like in his way with his mannerisms and this on this film. And I think a good example of that, like more now would be like David Foster Wallace who like 
I saw more interviews of than I ever read mm-hmm. of his work. Yeah. And yeah. that's not true of both of us, nevertheless. Like <laughs> there is a quality to David Foster Wallace where he was such a personality that you could have been into him and like never read him because mm-hmm. of just the like amount of interview material. Oh, same with Zizek, right? Like that's the- yeah, Zizek say there is this quality to like film and the like the we'll say the format of the interview, which I think if you live long enough to be able to be captured by it, it changes even the things that came before it because you're able to now color them in this new and interesting way. Mm-hmm. And this is sort of why we wanted to take a look at this series in general and art in general. And it is to reapproach or approach for the first time somewhat naively or as naively as we can these works so we can rediscover what they might have meant then because they arrived to us so decontextualized. You know, I mean, I grew up with my father as a painter, you know, so I grew up with some of this around. I've written on art before. Um, my wife and I like to go to LACMA. There's a Cezanne painting that I see and I just stand before it and almost weep for like like minutes at a time. Every time I go there, it fucks me up. So I have some sort of relationship with this, but I want to try to see it as these people saw it because we have this porous barrier now between ourselves and the past that has been created by the technological achievements that were being interpreted by these modern painters that has have also made us hard, it hard to place it in history and thus to locate where we are right like modernism as it's happening opposed to where we are now feels like a moment of high possibility there is nothing but possibility. We have a podcast about why nothing feels possible. There's like 100 years in between <laughs> a lot of the stuff we're talking about and now. And it really does feel like a different country. They do things differently there. Yeah. I think that it's um, that's a good point. It's one of the things that I value maybe the most when trying to like do anything in terms, historical terms would be trying to like appreciate what I'm interested in studying on its own terms. Mm-hmm. And I, nothing makes anything seem more like tedious to read when it's clear that like the person only valued whatever he was studying and the terms that he had like an ideological bent that was about to be served very quickly mm-hmm. by it and has not even going to try and hide that from you. It's just so annoying because I think Curtis Yarvin had a, like a good way of putting it. It's like making an enemy of the past. Mm-hmm. That's what a, a lot of people who work with the past are actually trying to do is sort of like, it's only good to me instrumentally if that much. And so mm-hmm. I don't find any value in that. I'll just say like, if if there is any, it's incidental to that mm-hmm. viewpoint being taken of it. And I think it is important to be able to go um, even to a place that you might not particularly care for historically or whatever and try and just be there as much as you can, which is, we you know, obviously just in pure terms of like experience and knowledge, that's impossible to do. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I think it's like beneficial to make that effort like the effort in and of itself will open up things to you that you would otherwise never have access to mm-hmm. even if that makes 
sense. So I just, I think that was a good point to make it just in general, but especially, you know, about this time, which seems so near to us, but isn't really. Exactly. There's this almost parallax relationship with it. And I kind of want to end it on this note a little bit is to talk about a painting I see in LACMA. Of course, I always forget who painted it, but it was from this era. And it's of a speaker talking to a crowd. And it's typical of uh, modern painting, uh, modernist painting, in that there are strange perspectival problems that show up in the painting. You know, it assumes multiple perspectives at once. There's this speaker talking to the crowd and he has these oversimplified hands, but they're they're almost like huge and red. They're very strange looking. And some of the people have sketched out faces that are emoting extremely. Some have faces that are like totally reduced and they're flattened. They're almost like, they look like that NPC meme, you know? <laughs> and when I look at that painting, I see so much of what people mean when they talk about the problem of modernity because you're seeing this sort of what reads in the painting as this like demagogic or highly emotive figure getting what could be construed as a rabble together and it's unclear whether they're being proselytized to or politically whipped up or frankly just entertained but there is this great feverish incoherence that is baked into the structure of that painting that leaves one feeling transfixed, but also cold and also perhaps a little bit like uneasy as you try to assimilate the line play and the color palette and the way they play off and against each other as you're staring at it. And I think this is especially true in cubism, but I think it's it's those problems are now, I would say, like ocular assumptions that we make about the world. If you just think about transitioning from the screen of your computer to the screen of your phone, and then to looking outside of the distance and seeing a shifting billboard that has an LED screen, you're already, while you're listening to us talk to you about this problem, like you're already there. You're permanently living in it, man. <laughs> that's it now, baby. <laughs> yeah, that's. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I feel like that's going to. I'm going to look at this stuff in a whole new way. I'll say like as a basically a neophyte in any of this stuff, this has kind of been a very instructive one for me. You know, I don't feel like I'm giving any expertise on this at all. It's more like I'm learning a lot as we talk about this. And that's, I mean, like, damn, that's spot on. Yeah. I mean, that's how, that's, that's how I feel too. That's why I so loved it. So guys watch the episode. You can watch ahead of us. We'll let you know. Actually, we'll probably just drop them randomly, but they take an hour and you should fucking watch them because we really want to make our way through this. We really want to acquaint ourselves. We hope that this was useful to you. And please reach us with any feedback on this or, or whatever. We'd love to hear from you. We always do. And if, you if you've watched this series and you want us to pay attention to certain things or you watch ahead, feel free to send us stuff because we're new at this and we want to figure it out or at least think more deeply about it and more seriously about it. And we'd appreciate a further input. So we'll leave it at that. Stay safe out there, guys. This was so much fun. I can't wait for the next one.
catch up hanging on you swim up to me and your body